Happy Sunday. I want to thank those four gentlemen for such a wonderful, wonderful contribution. Thank you. <laughs> My wife has to do that every Sunday I do this. <laughs> it was a wonderful entry into our meditation today. Some years ago, there was a theologian in the Netherlands by the name of Arnold Van Ruler who promoted a rather radical view of Scripture. He said that the gospel, the good news of God's work in the world, was most clearly seen in what we call the Old Testament or the First Testament. And that what we have in the four Gospels is more accurately an appendix or a supplement which explains how this all happened. And what we have in the letters of Paul and the other letters are the, church, the writings of the church's first theologians. Van Ruler died young before he made a name for himself in the wider theological world, but I find myself resonating with that notion. In fact, there was a period in my life where 50% of my sermons were out of the First Testament. I had conversations with Nathan Dannenson about this because he only preached out of the Gospels. I understood his rationale. Yet I think that approach may miss some wonderful lessons for our faith. As chapter 19 of 1 Kings opens, we will meet Elijah, a great prophet of Israel, running for his life. But on the previous day, in the previous chapter, Elijah had challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a prayer contest to determine whose God was the most powerful. The prophets of Baal went first, preparing their altars, sacrificing a bull, starting their prayers in the morning and praying until noon, at which point Elijah taunted them, telling them that they should pray louder, and nothing happened. They went so far as to cut themselves and bleed but nothing happened. Then Elijah prepared his altar and sacrifice, finishing by pouring water over everything. After Elijah prayed, fire came down from heaven and consumed not only the water and the bowl, but also the rocks. At the end of Elijah's day's work, wicked King Ahab was on the run. And the next morning, he told his wife Jezebel what Elijah had done. Please listen. For the word of God. Here it is. 
Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah did and how he killed the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life as the life of one of those. Full of fear, Elijah fled for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his attendant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've done enough, Yahweh, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel of Yahweh touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and near his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate the cake and drank the water and then lay down again. The angel of Yahweh came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank some more. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of Yahweh came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for Yahweh God omnipotent. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broke down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. God said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of Yahweh, for Yahweh is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks by Yahweh's power, but Yahweh was not in the whirlwind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for Yahweh God omnipotent. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broke down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword, and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Yahweh told Elijah, go back the way you came, to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel as ruler of Aram. Hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. It's early the next morning, and Jezebel has delivered a death threat to Elijah, which has caused him to run for his life into the wilderness, where he asks God to let him die. 
The lesson for Elijah was that no one can face life's challenges and struggles without being involved in some humiliating failures. This was a hard lesson for Elijah, and he apparently cracked under the pressure. We see the person at whose courage all Israel had marveled, now fleeing for his life. We see a person who had spoken as if he had only to raise his hand to heaven, and God would send legions of angels to his aid, now floundering for some prop to hold himself up. We see a person who had the most spectacular success suddenly sink into a mood of depression and despair. I've preached on this passage several times in my life, and I've always focused on Elijah encountering God, not in the wind, earthquake, and fire, but in the sound of a gentle stillness or gentle whisper. However, this time in reading this text, something else caught my attention. Elijah had an earlier experience of God's presence, which I had overlooked. It happened while he was sitting, feeling sorry for himself, under a solitary broom tree. A broom tree, for God's sake. They were called that because folks took the wispy branches and made brooms from them. In fact, broom trees are found today in Arizona and Nevada where people consider them noxious weeds. All you gardeners out there know the, the saying that a weed is only a flower growing where you don't want it to be. Well, no, sometimes a weed is really a weed. Here Elijah enjoyed the little amount of shade it offered. Even squeezing into the shade of the broom tree can be a welcome relief in the heat of the desert. You don't stand under a broom tree, it's too short. So you hunker down to get a little relief before moving on. God provided some brief relief, a piece of bread, a couple swallows of water, The lesson of the broom tree is that God sometimes meets us in the desert times of our lives, and God gives us relief. The shade is not enough to last forever, but it's enough to draw strength for the next step and the next step. The journey is not short. Sometimes it takes a long time to get through the desert. Elijah's journey took over a month to go from Judah to Mount Horeb. And when Elijah met God at Mount Horeb, he was still struggling, still searching for resolution. God did not make his circumstances immediately change magically. In this story, God does not even seem to give Elijah much sympathy. God did give Elijah direction, sustenance for the road a renewed purpose. Evidently, God was not put off by Elijah's feelings. 
In fact, it appears that God accepts Elijah's anger and depression. God simply asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds, I have been very zealous for Yahweh God omnipotent. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword, and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. That's a pretty strong emotional reaction. In essence, Elijah was saying, God, I've done everything I can for you. And what's the thanks I get? My life is threatened. Notice that God does not tell Elijah that he's wrong or that he should not express his natural human emotions. Instead, God reveals God's presence more fully to Elijah. And a great great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks by Yahweh's power. But Yahweh was not in the whirlwind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. God was different than what Elijah thought. Elijah did not seem to notice God's presence under the broom tree. Elijah's attention was primed for wind and earthquake and fire. Surprise, God wasn't there. But in a gentle whisper. Or as some translations have it, God was in the sound of a gentle stillness. Elijah experienced the presence of God in a stillness so near and so real that a fear and wonder came over his soul and he covered his face in reverence. After that experience on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah may have tended to identify the presence of God with the presence of fire from heaven and amazing success stories. Many of us place too much importance on miraculous events and ecstatic emotions in trying to experience God's presence. We tend to look for whirlwinds and earthquakes and fires as signals of God's work in the world. We think that God is not with us unless we see things happening on a grand and spectacular scale. Shortly after the God is Dead movement, a book was written with the title, Excerpts from the Diaries of a Late God. It was a tongue-in-cheek series of diary entries which the author suggested were from this dead God's diary. There was one entry that I particularly enjoyed. It was titled, A Word About Earthquakes. I have not, do not, and will not cause earthquakes. I did create the heavens and the earth, and it happens to be a property of earth, 
now and then to quake. And that's all there is to it. Applying Van Ruyler's view here, the gospel in this first king text is that God does not always appear among those with power or wealth or position. Sometimes God prefers to be made known among the despised, the depressed, the dispossessed. When we only associate God's presence with success and happiness, we bought into the American myth of success. I'm not saying that success, wealth, or power are disqualifiers for God's presence. It depends on how those were obtained and how they're being used. Whose blood, sweat, and tears went into building that wealth and success? Neither am I saying that poverty is a virtue because that depends on how it came about also. Is this person experiencing poverty because someone else had an advantage due to their gender or race or zip code of birth? What the story of Elijah tells us about the good news of God is that it is freely given and never earned. And it's not always apparent at first glance. Looking back, we might recognize how God's grace and mercies became incarnate in our human experience. But when we look forward, we place too many human expectations in the way of God. We think we know how it should be. It's important to note that even after Elijah went and stood at the entrance of the cave, God had to ask him a second time, what are you still doing here, Elijah? It seems that even after experiencing the gentleness of God's presence, Elijah did not recognize the quiet spiritual resources within himself. He did not identify God's presence in the gentle stillness, and so he responded in the very same way. The lesson of the broom tree is that sometimes God meets us in the deserts of our lives. He gives us temporary relief, like a broom tree. God does not make Elijah's self-pity magically disappear, no. God's final word to Elijah was a summons to go back to where he'd come from, to name a new king, to name Elisha as his successor. God still needed Elijah. And we are not stronger than Elijah, and none of us separated from the fellowship of the church is likely to do any better than to end up permanently sulking under a broom tree. That's gospel. And here's the addendum. Perhaps we can understand Elijah's experience better than he did. In Jesus Christ, we've seen the powers of death and destruction, defeated once and for all. At that moment, though, standing before that cross, the disciples saw only the failure. But God demonstrates God's presence and provides a victory. Oh, 
One more thing about the sermon title today, Looking for God in All the Wrong Places. In case you haven't noticed, there is no wrong place to look for God. There's no place where God is not present. If you wait patiently, you will even find God crying with the parents of murdered school children, with the survivors of the horrors of war, at the deathbeds of cancer victims. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Amen.